we are at war. When you answer the call to follow Christ, you may not have realized it in that moment. You may not have recognized the, the, the call to war, but you answered that call. <clears throat> it's unfortunate, I think, I, and, and this is an opinion, I have no way to prove this, but I think it's unfortunate that as followers of Christ, we don't recognize this often enough. You see, we aren't just His children. We aren't just citizens of His kingdom. We are more than just recipients of His blessings. As magnificent and as beautiful as these things are, we are more than that. You see, we are a people who He has given a purpose. He, in, in His gracious rebellion to redeem, forgive, adopt you, he gave you a mission. He called you to work. He called you to good works. That's why when Paul was writing, he didn't just end the letter of Ephesians at chapter 3. If, if, if all we were was a people who were redeemed, who could, who could now sit on the beach drinking Mai Tais because we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're saved, and that's just the way it was now, then he could have stopped writing at Ephesians chapter 3. But that's only half of the gospel. The gospel is that He's made you someone new, but He's also enabled you to live for Jesus' fame. You see, when God saved you, when He graciously rebelled against your rebellion, He changed the trajectory of your life so that you might finally live for His glory instead of your own. You see, He enabled you through Christ to live for His fame. He made us alive, and He seated us with Christ. He's, he's called us saints instead of sinners. He's given us this new name. But as Ephesians has taught us, that He also enables us now to live in a manner worthy of our calling. You see, this just isn't a calling He's given us or an expectation He has of us. But it's what He's empowering us and enabling us for. And we learned that or Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. God empowers us also to walk in purity and holiness, humbly, putting off the old self, putting on the new self, living as, as a righteous people of God. Ephesians 4, 1, or 17 through 5, 17, that's what that was all about. We spent weeks and weeks breaking that out. He provides His Spirit. He fills us with His presence so that we can live together worshiping in word, speaking to one another in songs and spiritual songs, and indeed sacrificing ourselves for one another. That was what 5.18 through 6.9 were all about. That's what we studied, a, a, a life together glorifying God in front of one another, leading others to worship Him as we worship Him. And then in this last section, we recognize, we, we, see, we see God equipping us that we might now do all of this victoriously in spite of the inevitable battles that we're going to face. You see, when God saved you, when God saved you, the enemy marked you. You get that? You used to be just a, a nameless face in the crowd, one of the deceived masses, someone who didn't matter. Don't think our enemy has ever had any concern for you, ever. 
You were never on His team. He never wanted the best for you or even cared one way or the other what you got just as long as God was defamed and dishonored. You were simply collateral damage. But when God saved you, the enemy marked you. And as now, now the thing is, is that the victory is won. The war is won. But there will be battles. There are many battles to fight until the consummation of the victory. There, there's a daily battle. In fact, the way that, that Paul treats it here is that there's battles in different forms. There's the evil day and then there's the, 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 the wrestling and then there's the fiery darts and there's, there's this reality that there's this close, intimate combat and there is darts coming from a distance. There's all kinds of battles you're going to face. There's some days are going to be worse than others, but there is always a war raging against us. Believers, we need to recognize it. We are not, we are no longer, we are no longer a people who can sit idly by and do nothing. You see, Jesus has called us into this war. He has called us for His fame to join His rebellion. What does that look like? How, how different does that make our lives? Well, let's just, let me just give you a couple of principles and then we're going to get into the Scripture. You see, because of what God has done, because of what He's done through Jesus Christ, difficulty and struggle actually become disciplines for us. They become, they, they become the things that God uses to shape us and strengthen us rather than things that crush us. That's how different it is. So, so now, I, I don't know what your struggles are. I don't know the things that you're facing. I don't know the difficulties of your life. I, at least not all of them. Some of you I know. Some of you I, I, I'm intimate enough with, I'm close enough with, that I know many of the struggles that you deal with on a, on a day-to-day basis. But the reality is, is that the Scripture teaches us now that we face those. Not, not as things that crush us or, or, or things that deny God's goodness in front of us, but they are the things that He uses to shape us and mold us and make us like Him. Because of what God has done in Christ, temptation is no longer a reason just simply to failure. It's no longer a path immediate to, to immediate failure. But for the believer, because of what God has done, temptation is the opportunity to exercise victory. You see, you don't have to automatically fall to temptation. Because of what God has done, what He's enabling you for, you can actually say no to the temptation. The Scripture teaches us that God has provided, will provide a way out. Let me tell you, He has provided a way out. He has given you His armor. He has prepared you for this battle. We can say no. We can live in obedience. Because of what God has done, fear and self, uh, fear no, no longer has to be our motive. That fear is self-preservation. It's about, oh man, if I jump off that cliff, I'm going to die. Right? Now, that, that kind of fear is probably good. I don't want you going out and jumping off a cliff unless you're wearing a parachute. But that, that kind of fear is probably okay. But the kind of fear that says, if I share my faith, they may not like me. So I'm going to preserve myself. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be bold and courageous in my witness. But, but rather, rather, because of what God has done, we can actually love others. We can sacrifice ourselves knowing. Knowing that His work, that His power 
And His provision for us is greater, better, more sustaining than anything else. But here's the catch. We have to quit living like we're... Well, let me just use this as an illustration. We have to quit living like the United States today at war. The vast majority of our citizens have no understanding or idea. They're not affected by the the conflicts that our military faces on a daily basis. We get together on Memorial Days and and, and on, on 4th of July and we celebrate our freedom. But the very vast majority of us have no understanding about what that has to do or what that means at all. We're not affected by it in any way except getting to enjoy the benefits of it. So we sit back and we sip on our drinks and we enjoy our 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 our, our parties and and we are lulled to sleep at night feeling good about who we are and where we live. It's a vastly different idea than what it was like when America was involved in World War II. When the whole country got behind the war effort. But how it changed the shape of our culture because we were so involved and so supportive and so uh, so, so understanding of what it cost to be free. You see, brothers and sisters, there's a catch. We have to get busy. We have to get busy putting on the armor of God. We have to get busy living as He's called us to. We have to get busy preaching and proclaiming the Gospel first to ourselves so that we are able to proclaim it to others. We have to get busy following, pursuing, striving, persevering, running after Christ our Savior rather than sitting as if we're in heaven now. This is earth. And it is consumed by a war. Brothers and sisters, it is time to wake up from our slumber. Don't hear me shouting because I'm trying to condemn you. I've been sleeping too. For the vast majority of my Christian life, I have slept. And I have enjoyed the comforts of the Gospel. Thanking God for His blessing, but failing to thank Him for the struggle that He's given me to pursue His name. You see, we were not just granted the blessing of believing in Christ. We were granted to suffer for His name. That's Philippians 1. Brothers and sisters, it's time to take up the armor and get in the fight. It's time to go to war. Paul knew, he knew that we would be susceptible to temptations to hide, to temptations to deny. He knew that we would be susceptible to fear, to self-preservation. He knew that we would be susceptible to the challenges that just just these three chapters have put in our world. I mean, just imagine the challenge of being the man that God has called you to be. Imagine the challenge to fully be the wife God has called you to be. Imagine the challenge of no longer walking like the Gentiles do, living in such a drastically different way than the rest of the world that your life reeks of righteousness. 
Imagine the challenge of being so holy that there's not a hint, not even a hint, not a whisper, not a glimpse of sexual immorality and impurity. Imagine the challenge. You see, Paul knew we would be afraid of that. He knew that we'd be susceptible to hiding from it. And he knew that we'd be enticed and tempted by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. He knew it. He closes this letter with an exhortation to get in the fight, to put on the armor and do battle because it's a battle. And he tells us, he says, he starts with the armor and he, he says, oh man, I wish, I, I wish we had weeks and weeks. Maybe, maybe sometime we'll come back and deal with this. And he says, put on the belt of truth. I don't think any one of these pieces of armor is more important. I don't want you to get this idea. We're going to spend a little more time on this one than the others. But I, I, there's, there's none that's more important. It's the whole armor of God, right? It's the panoply of the, of the armor of God. It's the whole thing. And, and one piece is, is dependent upon the other. They're, they're intertwined. And just like a soldier doesn't get up and go into war with his shield but not his breastplate, we are called to go into war with the whole armor of God. But let me tell you, I think this belt of truth, I think it becomes foundational to the other pieces because without the truth of God, without the truth of God, we don't know His righteousness. We don't even know what righteousness is. We don't know what it looks like. We have no example of it. We have no, 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 no ability to gain insight into it because there's no one to be able to say, oh, this is righteous and this is not. If there's no truth from God, we don't know what to believe. All of a sudden, faith loses power no matter what you place it in. And while they all are of equal importance and equal value to the believer, I think this becomes foundational. Partly because I think that this is the probably, probably the basic dividing characteristic between our enemy's kingdom and our Savior's kingdom. You see, from the very beginning, Satan has been telling lies. Evil entered, entered the world as the serpent tempted Eve with a lie. God, God, God didn't really say that, did He? He didn't really mean that you would die. I mean, that's not really what He, that's not really what he meant. Let me rephrase that for you. Let me help you understand. Let me interpret that for you. And Eve believes the lies. She falls to the temptation. When, when he faced Jesus in the desert, when the enemy faced Jesus in the desert, he twisted and contorted the truth. He lied in hopes of call, causing Jesus to fall. He deceives people with knowledge and intellect so that we deny God's presence altogether, that we deny His existence, that we deny His power, that we deny that there's even anything wrong with us. Really the pitiful truth about this is that He denies us into believing that even though I can sit here and I can admit I'm a sinner, even though I can walk up to just about anybody in this city and work through a conversation that leads them to admit that they've sinned and that they're fallen, they still believe at some level that God's going to accept them because they're, they're good enough. And He is deceiving people. Our, our enemy, he's, he's not just about deceiving those 
who are easily deceived. He's not just about deceiving people who are walking around in darkness. Well, that's easy. It's easy to make somebody believe something when they can't see it, when they can't know it, when they can't understand it. You see, he deceives us as well. He really works hard at deceiving those who have trusted Jesus for salvation, who have admitted that they're sinful. Brothers and sisters, we need to know this. We need to get this. We need to recognize it. We need to put on this piece of the armor. We need to put on the belt of truth because to stand against the lies of the enemy, we must know and apply God's absolute truths. We must know it and we must apply it. The enemy is all about telling us lies. He tells us that that, um, God might have saved us. He says to you, he says, God might have saved you, but you've got to keep yourself saved. And we live with that in spades in Springfield. Now, God saved you. But you better, be, you better be doing everything you can to keep yourself saved. You see, what happens is rather than living for God's glory, we're motivated by that fear, that, self, that, that self-preservation. Well, well, I don't want to go to hell. I mean, I know what that's like. And so then we begin living out of guilt. We begin living to measure up to a standard and we deny God's holiness. We deny His righteousness. We deny His His grace and His mercy. We we, we deny who God is altogether. As we walk in that deception, (laughs) the enemy lies. He tells us that there are things around us that will satisfy us. In America at large, we live with this in spades. Church, the American church, and I'm not talking about the people who show up on Sunday. I'm talking about the people that Jesus has saved at large. Many, many if not most, are enticed by the things of this world. And I'm not asking you to measure other people. I'm asking you to take an inventory of your own life. I would be willing, I'd be willing to bet if I were a betting man. Let me say that. I'd be willing to bet that there's not one of us in this room that can't point to how we're living at excess for ourselves and denying God's call to fight this battle. We are being deceived, brothers and sisters. But it goes beyond the external. You see, He lies to us, condemning us, making us believe that we are worthless. God could never love you. Look at you! How could He love someone like that? You are pitiful. How many of you walk in here week after week you step into your week, day after day, hearing that voice beating you up. It is a lie of the devil. Jesus proved his love for you on the cross. You never have to disbelieve it again. You never have to wonder. You never have to be in doubt. He loved you enough to die for you. Or it goes, it goes the other way as well. 
You see, the enemy, he lies to us by making us believe that we are so good. We don't really even need grace anymore. Look at all I do. Look at what I've done for him. Boy, God must be proud of me. That's a lie. When God looks at you, He sees a saint because you are washed in the blood of His Son. Believe it because that's the truth. See, God's truth tells us who we were. It tells us what we deserve. It tells us who He is and what He's capable of and what He's done. This week, I want to, I want to just challenge you. I want to encourage you this week. We've been in Ephesians a long time. But I want you to go home and I want you to spend this week reading the first three chapters. Every day, read them over and over. I, I want you to turn off the television. I, just give up TV for the week. I don't care if you watch it next week. I don't care if you tape your shows and, and catch up on them later. I want you to spend this week in every spare moment sitting down and reading the first three chapters of Ephesians. And I want you to make a list. I want you to make a list of what God did, of who God is. I want you to make a list of who you were and who you are now. You see, that's the truth. And I don't have time to go through it all right now, but I want you to go home and I want you to spend time soaking yourself, saturating yourself in the truth of God that you might know His truth so that, you, that then you can apply it to your life. I am confident, because I'm confident in His truth, that you're not going to be disappointed. The second piece of the armor, he calls the breastplate of righteousness. Here, here you need to understand this too, because everything the enemy does, I mean, this is, a, this is a perfect defense against our enemy. Everything the enemy does is evil. There's nothing good about it. There's nothing that's righteous in it. There's nothing holy. There's nothing, there's nothing that's right or justified. Everything he does is evil. Some of those things are, are, are much easier to see. Some of those things are much easier to recognize. Nazis, Holocaust of the Jews, Joseph Coney's kidnapping of, of over 30,000 kids. And as he brought those kids into his army, he would make them kill their parents and siblings with machetes and blunt objects. Could you imagine being a 12 or 13-year-old having to chop off your father's head or having to beat your mother to a bloody pulp? That's what he did. That's so easy to see the evil. It's so easy to see the evil in Jeffrey Dahmer's serial killing and, and munching on the flesh. It's so easy to see the evil in sex trafficking and prostitution. It's so easy to see the evil in pornography. And it's so easy to demonize those things. But behind them is an evil that goes far further and greater and more powerful than those things ever were. And they only exist because this evil one exists. Brothers and sisters, this is pure evil. We need, we desperately need a righteousness to protect us. We desperately need a righteousness to shield us and keep us safe. If we're going to be victorious in daily battles against the evil one, against evil like this one, we must depend on a righteousness from Christ and not our own. 
See, the enemy, is because he's deceptive, he's going to come at us trying to get us to rely on ourselves, to think we're either righteous by ourselves or, or unable to be righteous because what we've done is too big for God to forgive. Don't believe it. Neither, neither option is really completely true by themselves. The Bible says, Romans 3.10, no, no, none is righteous. No, not one. I think he... I think he emphasized it there. I think the, the Spirit led Paul to call back to that as it is written. I, I think he put it in the Scriptures because somebody might come along and say, well, hey, I've done pretty good. I think I'm righteous. Well, this cuts it all out. There's none of us that deserves to stand before Christ. There's none of us that, that deserve to have access to the throne room of God. There's none of us that deserve to be recipients of the blessing. There's none of us that deserve to have the hope of an inheritance that's waiting for us in heaven. There's none of us that deserve that. But that's only half of the story. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, our sake, yours and mine, people just like you and me, our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, that's Jesus. He made Jesus to, to, that knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of of, of God in Christ, we are not just made righteous superficially. We are made righteous through and through. It's all the way through us. It's who we are. And it highlights two things for us. Because of our righteousness, because our righteousness is from Jesus, there is no sense in pretending that we're worthy of His love. You don't, have to be, you don't have to pretend to be something you're not anymore. You're righteous because of Jesus. Own that identity. Own that truth. Make it true about yourself. Because we are righteous in Christ, there's no longer any reason to perform in order to prove that we are worthy of God's love. There's no reason anymore to try and measure up before Him. He said, you're righteous. You don't have to work for it anymore. You don't have to pretend to fool other people and you don't have to perform hoping you might fool God. You're righteous. And Paul says, put on that breastplate. What that means is make it true about yourself. You want to know how to be righteous because you've been made righteous? After you've read Ephesians 1 through 3, spend the next week reading Ephesians 4 through 6. All of those things, all of those things, it's what it looks like to live a holy and righteous life. To hear His truth, believe it, and put on His righteousness. Ephesians 1 through 3 tells you the truth. Ephesians 4 through 6 tells you how to live righteously in light of it. But it doesn't stop there. You see, God's given us more. He's prepared us even more fully. He goes from the breastplate of righteousness to the shoes of the gospel of peace. Everything the enemy does, everything he does results in strife and unrest. He's called Satan. That means adversary. That means he's an opponent. That means he's after you. That means he's striving to oppose you. That, he, he wants to make your life a living hell. You get that? We so often ask, why in the world do I have to suffer so much? Because we're at war. Why, why in the world would a Christian think that his life was supposed to be all roses and dandelions? 
wait a minute, all roses and tulips without dandelions. That's better, isn't it? Should have written that one down first and worked it out. Dandelions are weeds. You guys get that, right? When they grow in your yard, you're supposed to get rid of them. That's bad for you. The reality is he's, he's all about. He's all about causing strife and struggle. Hmm. Why? Why in the world would we want to believe anything he's got to say? But there's many of us. There's many of us believing, faithful Christians who forget we're standing on a rock. See, the gospel of peace, it makes us ready to stand. That's what Paul talks about. He talks about the preparedness that comes by putting on the shoes of the gospel of peace. You see, brothers and sisters, you are standing on the rock. There's nothing that shakes it. God is undefeatable. His kingdom is unshakable. There's nothing that can undo it or oppose it. In Christ, we have peace with God and we have peace from God. And that peace from God, and you'll hear about this in Ephesians chapter 2 when you go home and read it, that peace from God results in peace with others. You see, our whole world could be falling apart. Everything about our lives and our str- and, 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 and the circumstances that we live in, interpersonal struggles all around us. Our job could be, could be at risk. Our home could be just about to be lost. Our, our life could be just about to end. But you don't have to be shaken. You can be stable. Because Christ is stable. He tells us about a shield of faith that extinguishes the darts of the enemy. This is a difficult one for people because the the, the reality is this, is that everybody believes something. Right? Everybody believes something. There's not a person in this world that doesn't exercise faith in some way. And so it's, it's, it's sometimes we lose sight of the fact that this faith is a faith given to us by God. It is God's armor. He gives it to us. You see, we exercise powerless faith all the time. Let me just illustrate that quickly. When you climb into a car, you expect to reach your destination. Nobody climbs into a car and thinks, I want to go out and get in a wreck. That's why we call them accidents, because there was an accident. Nobody plans on it. Nobody expects it. By by experience, we assume I got to my destination before and I got to my destination before that. And at least for me, I've never been in a wreck. Experience tells me I can believe I'm going to make it to my destination. I have no reason to worry. It's powerless. It's empty. You see, faith, this kind of faith comes from God. And it's directed at God. Faith becomes powerful not because you exercise it. Faith becomes powerful because the object it's placed in is powerful. You see, our faith extinguishes fiery darts when it's placed in God. And that is putting up the shield of faith. We, we can believe all kinds of things. 
But winning the battles against evil demands we believe in God more than we believe anything or anyone else. Listen, I'm not talking about saying you believe it. I'm talking like acting like you believe it. There's a difference. What you believe is what you act on. That's what you really believe. I know you believe those chairs will hold you, and you really don't have any reason to believe that if you know about those chairs. Yeah, you know about those chairs. That's why you're laughing. They could dump any one of you out at any moment. I'm just saying. But you believe in them, so you set on them. I heard a story. I don't remember the missionary's name, but he was struggling as he translated the Scriptures into this tribal, uh, this Indian tribe's language. And he was struggling because they didn't have a word for trust. And so he was dealing with one of the with one of the people that he had been evangelizing. He came in and he talked about, and, and, and this guy gave him the answer. He didn't know how to describe faith or believing in Christ. He didn't know how to, to interpret that and to change it into this language. And this man comes into him one day and he talks about resting his whole weight on something. And that's how they defined trust. You see, brothers and sisters, the kind of faith this talks about is the kind of faith that rests your whole weight, your whole being, your whole existence, your success, your failure, your hope, your longing, your desires, your satisfaction. It rests all of you from the inside to the very outside in the power and presence of God. You see, this is the faith He's calling us to. And so we can believe the lies of the enemy or we can believe the truth of God. Which one do you believe? And we can believe that God could never really love us. Or we could believe Romans 8, 38 through 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor anything else in all of creation could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which do you believe? Which are you resting in? Which are, which are you putting weight on? Which are you trusting? And we can believe that there's something more satisfying than knowing Jesus. Or we can believe Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything. Did you hear that? He didn't mean some things. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And really, if I wasn't in church, I'd translate that a little different for you because it's really filthy. In order that I may gain Christ. Do you really believe that Jesus is better? Are you resting on that? Does your life demonstrate fruit of that? We can believe one or the other. We, brothers and sisters, have been empowered by God to believe the truth. It's just now ours to put up the shield, to rest our weight on it, to believe it. And, and as you believe it, here's the promise. Here is the promise as you believe it you will see the results of it. 
because the fiery darts will be extinguished and you will see victory. He goes on to the helmet of salvation. It's important we understand the helmet of salvation because our enemy is a destroyer. He destroys everything. He knows all is lost. He knows that Jesus will win, but he is going to do whatever he can to destroy whatever he can. Here is the beauty of it. Jesus says, and this is John 10:28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. You see, you are safe. The war is won. And we can stand in the battle confidently because there is no one who can overpower or undermine our Savior. No one, nothing is big enough. Nothing is powerful enough. Nothing can do it. Salvation is not just some past experience you had as a child when you walked an aisle and said a prayer. Maybe that's the moment you were saved. But today you are just as safe. And in the coming days when the King comes in the culmination of His victory, you will be saved. You see, salvation is all-encompassing. It covers our past, our present, and our future. There is nothing that can get through this helmet. So don't take it off. Don't quit believing it. Don't quit living in it. Don't quit applying it. Don't forget it. Brothers and sisters, that's the defense. But He didn't just leave us without offense. He didn't just leave us you know, in such a way that we just got to stand there and take the beating. He gives us something to strike back. In God's Word, the sword of the Spirit, it's our only weapon. I've tried to model how you use it all the way through this sermon. When you hear a lie, you speak the truth. Where do you get the truth? Ah, oh, two plus two is four. That's true. Does that help? Probably not. Where do you find the truth? In the very Word of God. Where do we find the Word of God? Not from Dr. Spock, not from Oprah Winfrey, not from the next best bookseller, even on Christian bookshelves. Brothers and sisters, this is God's Word, the Bible. Can you learn from other good, solid Christian men? Absolutely, you can but don't ever let them be a substitute for knowing and reading and studying and breathing in the very Word of God. Knowing and applying God's Word is not just a good defense. You see, it helps us defend ourselves with that belt of truth, but it is our best offense. Maybe the, maybe the classic example of this is when Jesus was being tempted in the desert. Satan came twists versions, twisted and, and gives us the Satan edited version of the Scripture. And he comes to Jesus and he, and he tempts Him. And he twists Scripture to tempt Him. And at every temptation, Jesus countered it with truth from God's Word. The Scripture. It's the best example we got. How are you going to wield a sword if you've never practiced swinging? How are you going to wield a sword 
if you don't even keep it nearby you? How are you going to wield this sword? Oh, we can say, but the Spirit's going to bring you truth. He's going to remind you. Yeah, absolutely He will. He'll protect you. But brothers and sisters, we have been called to use this sword, to swing it in offense, to not just, not just sit idly by hoping someone teaches me truth, but learning to use it striving to understand it. we got to read and study God's Word so that we can believe it, so that we can obey it, and so that we can proclaim it for ourselves and others. You're not the only one who needs the Word of God. The people sitting next to you need you to swing your sword to. They need you to use God's Word in their defense. Every week I get up here and I preach... I'm striving to swing the sword, to, to, to swing His Word in such a way that it strikes at the battle, at the heart of what, this, what, what, what the enemy is doing in your life so that you can hear the truth, so that you can see the magnificent beauty of our Savior, so that you can understand who you are in Him. Don't let me do that alone. When you sit in your community groups, when you go out to dinner with one another, why, why is it that we spend more time talking about what shows we're watching? Why is it that we spend more time sitting talking about what drinks we're making? Why is it that we sit and talk about so much about our plans for our future? Brothers and sisters, we need to be singing to one another in hymns and songs and spiritual songs. We need to be reminding one another of the truths of the Spirit uh, or the truths of God's Word. But I'm afraid many of us can't. You need to pick up your sword. You need to get in the fight. And then last, most people think that the armor kind of stops there. I, I, I don't, maybe the armor stops there, but this teaching about spiritual warfare doesn't stop there because He calls us to pray. If God's Word is our weapon, our only offensive weapon, then prayer is His battle plan to unite His army for victory. You see, He calls us to pray in all kinds of prayers. And He doesn't just say pray for yourself, does He? Just pray for one another. You and I are not in this alone. Our church is not in this alone. We are not by ourselves in Springfield. We're not the only answer. We're not the only truth-believing, gospel-proclaiming people. And, and God, forgive us if we ever act that way or think like that. Thank God He's got groups all over this city. Thank God He's got groups all over this state. We need to fall to our knees in prayer. You see, the call to go to battle is to put on the armor and then not charge, but fall on our knees for one another. Paul takes a moment and he says, especially for me. And so I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to say, especially for me. But don't forget one another. Please, don't forget one another. Your call, your fight is important. It is necessary. It is just as 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 as, as special or as important as mine. It, it it holds the same weight. We live in a broken world and we fight an evil enemy. 
We need one another to bow our knees, our knees in prayer. Listen, when we pray, we invoke God's power. We not only ask for His strength, we invoke it. We lift our shield of faith when we call on Him because we, we recognize our need for Him. We rely on His truth because there's no way we can go to Him and pray and say, God, You didn't save me. We need His truth to pray. This is His battle plan. This is the way not only how we put on the armor, it's how we use the armor. You see, as we pray, it tells us in Philippians, as we pray and we come in thanksgiving, recognizing that everything is under His control and that there is nothing He's letting that's happen to us that's not under His control and for our good. As we recognize that and we come in gratitude, praying that the peace that passes understanding will guard our hearts and minds. You see, when we pray, that's when we get serious about using the armor of God. And the reality is we don't even have to be together to do that. But we do. We do have to recognize the importance of us fighting in the war, fighting the battles that God's given us to fight. So brothers and sisters, church family, answer the call. Get in the fight. For Jesus' fame, join His rebellion. Let's pray.